Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. There's very little that Republicans and Democrats agree on when it comes to health care policy in this country. However, there has been one policy initiative that has survived two Republican administrations and is about to see its second Democratic administration. That initiative is the push to move patient health records off of paper and into the digital world where they can be easily accessed by patients and easily moved between hospitals and other healthcare entities. 16 years ago, President George W. Bush established the position and the office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, or ONC. And in a moment, we are going to talk with the National Coordinator himself, Dr. Donald Rucker. Welcome to another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Albright, and I serve as the Communication Committee Chair for Weedy. That's W-E-D-I. Weedy is a national membership organization where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. My day job is Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous Payments, Z-E-L-I-S, and Zealous's mission is to enable providers to simplify and save on their payments and claims. In our virtual studio, we've got producer of this podcast, Michael McNutt, Director of Education and Events for Weedy. Michael, how are you doing today? Excited. It's holiday season, and I'm very excited to uh, get to hear from Dr. Rucker once again. <laughs> very good. I'm looking forward to it, too. Uh, as we've mentioned, we do have Dr. Donald Rucker, National Coordinator in the Office of the National Coordinator, or ONC, for Health Information Technology. Dr. Rucker, very excited to have uh, the opportunity to talk with you today, and it is an honor to have you on our show. Uh, thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Michael. So, Dr. Rucker, uh, on this show, it's always interesting to hear the background stories of the healthcare leaders that we have on, how they ended up in healthcare, or how they ended up in their various positions. Uh, so often we find that people take lessons from other areas or, or from their past that they then apply to healthcare. But uh, at least judging from your educational experience, it looks like you knew exactly where you were headed uh, from a very young age, uh, undergraduate in chemistry. Uh, then right to medical school, then pretty quickly you pick up both an MBA and a computer science uh, master's degrees. So it looks like you you wanted to combine IT with medicine, with business, and that makes you a very uh, appropriate national coordinator. Uh, do, do I have that right? I'm not uh, missing any lost years in Paris when you were a, a struggling mime or, or artist or something, right? No, um, I, I think certainly the uh, formal educational track uh, was pretty linear with a residency uh, um, in in there um, in internal medicine. Um, no, I, I actually um, when, when I got to med school, I you know I'd, I'd sort of thought about you know some of the economic issues, but you know twenty one or twenty two, whatever I was, didn't really think about it that much. Um, the um, but when I got to med school and saw the sort of the just the incredible inefficiency um, in the teaching hospital system, which was, you know, the corner of medicine that I was exposed to, um, I, I realized that um, American healthcare really was a um, very inefficient, very inefficient activity. Um, and so then it was a bit of a search. I wouldn't say it was being a mime on the street in Paris, but 
Um, and I was sort of trying to figure out what to do about it and, and iterated through a couple things. As a med student, I got to work with um, Zena, first and second year faculty member, the late John Eisenberg, who eventually became head of what is now ARC, who was a totally charismatic person and got me excited about decision analysis <clears throat> and decision trees. So I had visions of sugar plump fairies dancing my head and, and we'll make medicine logical with decision trees, um, which were sort of the, the vogue in business schools um, and, um, and you know operations research back in, in that era. When I got to my residency, <coughs> sorry, when I got to my residency, I realized, so now we're talking 1981 to 84, I realized that the issue was not want of a decision tree, it was actually want of any data to base a decision on. And that was early in the sort of the PC era, and I realized um, that this was invariably going to be at its heart a computational problem, a computer science problem. And, um, you know, then I set about as, as literally at that point a 30 year old, it's sort of um, daunting to decide in your very late 20s after having gone through, you know, college, med school, residency, that you want to go back to school full time and, and do computer science, especially since I hadn't taken undergrad courses. So essentially I was doing a second undergrad major as a 30-year-old. Um, but at any rate, that's what I did um, and have been in the field ever since. So I guess that's my story and I'm sticking with it. Yeah, well, it's a good story. And it, it's, it's very, uh, it, each one of those subject areas that you studied, the computer science and the MBA and the, the, uh, the, uh, the medical school all kind of combined to really you know, what we've seen in the last 20 years with healthcare policy. You, you also spent some time, quite some time, in the emergency room as a practicing physician and, and then teaching emergency medicine. So what drew you to emergency medicine and, and what were maybe the lessons learned there uh, that you may have carried to your position as national coordinator? Well, um, I mean, to be clear, I other than because of all the federal ethics regulations, I have been a practicing ER doc um, pretty much the entirety of my career, either full-time or part-time. So what it was 30, it's been 30 years, not you know a handful. Um, yeah, the initial thing about emergency medicine, that was sort of a very fledgling field when I you know was in med school and started my internal medicine residency. Um, I was drawn to it um, in part um, because it lent itself to um, part-time activities, and when you're a full-time student, um, you do have to support yourself. So, um, and you know, I could time shift um, that work very easily to weekends and evenings. The, the, the more fundamental thing about emergency medicine is we, and this is going to be ironic given the rest of my career and everything, but emergency medicine is one of the parts of medicine where you are really can be a diagnostician in the classic um, you know, William Osler, who sort of was famous as the father of American thoughtful medicine when he was at Johns Hopkins a hundred odd years ago, um, and, you know, who invented things like teaching hospitals and internship and residency and grand rounds. Um, you know, when people come to you in the ER, it, it, it 
you have a chance to be a de novo diagnostician and sort out what's going on. Often the rest of medicine is this world of, you know, you referred for a procedure or whatever. So there's a, um, an intellectual excitement about um, emergency medicine that um, if you like um, thinking on the fly, it's very appealing and, um, you know, um, it, it's sort of like podcasts, right? Um, <laughs> don't know the questions, right? It's thinking on the fly. So they're, they're sort of similar, not totally identical, but somewhat similar. Good. Well, I think we'll put that in the marketing that, uh, you know, we're doing a podcast, which Dr. Rucker has equivocated with emergency medicine. I love that. I like that. I think uh, most of our listeners, doctor, are, are familiar with the ONC, the Office of the National Coordinator, uh, but they may only know your office because of its uh, because of its regulations, because of the interoperability rules or, or maybe that it manages the health IT certification program. But speaking more broadly, what do you see as ONC's role today? And maybe what are you working on that you're most excited about? Yeah, so um, just so folks are clear, the Office of the National Coordinator is a smaller agency, what's called a staff agency, within the Department of Health and Human Services. So that cabinet, obviously, um, we're way smaller than, for example, Medicare, which I'm sure all of your audience is intimately familiar with, or um, FDA or CDC or NIH um, or, you know, some of the other SAMHSA. Um, so what we've focused on, and it's varied over the years, as I think is, is pretty well known, um, but I would say the focus today when you think about what is health IT coordination, right, so what's the title, um, is really a combination of um, things around standards and interoperability um, writ broadly. Um, and so what are the components of that? Well, um, clearly a big component is actually working and in fact supporting with tax dollars uh, the, the whole st the standards agencies and standard development work, right? Um, and then the other part of that um, is you know, implementing those standards through a certification program, uh, which is, um, you know, certified electronic health records are required for a number of the CMS programs. We're trying to do that, of course, not just as as a mandate, you know, that um, you shall, but, at, you know, we're trying to be very supportive. We have all kinds of, um, we've built um, all kinds of electronic test bed harnesses so that developers can test their systems for things like, uh, you know, the fire APIs and the various APIs. So we're trying to be uh, very supportive of the community there. Um, and then there are things that sort of are maybe more overarching projects. And obviously the biggest one there was the 21st Century Cures Act uh, Title IV interoperability role that really um, blends all of those things with um, specifics on not information blocking and what are standardized application programming interfaces. Another big area um, uh, are health supporting health information exchange, the trust exchange framework, common agreement. Um, if you look at all of that, uh, and then there's some, you know, some big things on um, provider burden that we've been involved with with CMS. 
if you look at, at other than maybe the payment-related documentation things, they're really all ways of getting the American public the benefits of interoperability, right? So we know interoperability has provided vast benefits to the country through the internet. You know, Metcalf's law, you know, network scales, you know, um, I believe to the square or whatever, exponential power, folks can Google it. Um, but we want to really make these network effects as powerful as possible. We believe that's going to be central to making healthcare more efficient, more affordable, more continuous, more real time. So it's not just the doctor's visit or the procedure, but something that, um, you know, where we can apply components of healthcare in our lives every day. Um, and all of that these days is um, digital. And to have that for the public good, honestly requires, and at, at low cost, requires standards. So that's the, that's a bit of a long answer, but those are, I think, all of the, 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 the key threads that we do to really empower um, the American public to fully access the data um, and the opportunities they paid for through their tax dollars and their Medicare dollars and their insurance dollars. So uh, talking about the interoperability rule, maybe you can tell us a bit about the logistics uh, or the delays and the enforcement discretion that have recently recently been announced about the rule. Yeah, um, obviously in the ideal world, the rules and the APIs would have been out several years ago, pre-COVID, um, right? But, um, you know, we don't uh, obviously get to choose our pandemics or our timing. And um, so we had the, the very funny, I don't know, funny is the wrong word, um, the, the sort of, um, I, I guess, weird, um, the, you know, the, 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 the conjunction of the rule being formally announced and COVID, right? Um, some folks may remember we were actually going to um, formally announce the rule at HIMSS in March and President Trump had already had agreed to fly down to HIMSS and unveil the rule at HIMSS. Oh, wow. um, on a Monday, and that got canceled on the uh, Wednesday and Thursday before, right when COVID came. So um, we were in a, you know, um, and so um, the as as you mentioned, the bipartisan interest in getting that out is as strong as ever, probably stronger than ever. Um, I was just talking with, um, you know, somebody on the um, in a Democratic side of the aisle, if you will who we've worked with for many, many years um, in both administrations. And um, we're absolutely geared to do this. We also understand, um, you know, there are some things to build out. There are some things on policy with information blocking and APIs. And some of the same folks who would do that are, you know, busy with COVID. And so the, um, you know, the time extension has really been modular this, you know, first part of COVID. I think, you know, many of the things, you know, for example, the telehealth response have largely been built out now. So we have shifted the timelines pretty much exactly proportionally to um, to that effort and, um, you know, taken it to make some of the, the, the implementation guidelines fall on uh, 
you know, December 31st, so they match up with um, some of the CMS uh, rulemaking around um, promoting interoperability as well. So you, you may not be able to answer this question, uh, but it uh, feels like we're still in the, uh, this, the midst of this pandemic where, where it's spiking across the country. Do you expect that the um, any more delays could happen to the interoperability rule, any more enforcement discretions? Well, you know, I, I think we're um, really starting to see the end of the light in the pandemic to the extent that um, we have, you know, um, what appear to be very robust vaccines built in volume going to be rolled out in a uh, extraordinary um extraordinarily fast time frame um, that are very targeted and look to have incredible efficacy if all of those things happen as every indicator is um, you know we'll we'll um, we'll be uh, in in sort of good shape to uh, get our get you know get our lives back to something that you know is more normal so while we're on the the the, the, the context of the pandemic, how do you think the pandemic has maybe magnified the need for and the solutions promised by interoperability? What are some of the situations and challenges that we are facing now in the midst of this pandemic that maybe could could be or could have been mitigated by interoperability? Well, uh, you know, I think obviously we've implemented a lot of telehealth, um, as everyone knows. Um, you know, it's one thing to do telehealth as a, um, you know, a, a one-time isolated compartmentalized event, right? Here's your appointment time. You get on the, uh, you know, video um, feed or, or the audio feed with your provider. Um, a richer view of telehealth is that no matter where that provider has virtualized to because of COVID, they're going to have, you know, all of your underlying data. They will have tools, which they actually do now, to order prescriptions, um, but maybe things they don't necessarily have, you know, to order tests, to um, plug you in to the appropriate referrals and follow-up. So we've had sort of a narrow slice of telehealth, but really we want to get um, telehealth more integrated with the um totality of care um, and APIs are that glue that make that possible. They're the, uh, uh, you know, they're sine qua non uh, pretty much for doing that, especially if you're going to do it over multiple sites of services or in a way that allows patients to shop providers um, and not be, um, you know, absolutely bound to a single delivery system and their internal systems, um, you know, so that we can have uh, competition. So I think that's a big that's a big lesson. Thank you, Dr. Rucker. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion with Donald Rucker, National Coordinator of the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT. Now let's take a quick break and hear from our producer, Michael McNutt. The preeminent National Membership Association for Health IT Guidance and Collaboration, WIDI has earned the title of being an instrumental force in engaging public and private partnerships facilitating discussions and providing a collaborative voice as a national healthcare advisor to provide meaningful changes for the American healthcare system. Become a member and provide national leadership that enhances the exchange of clinical and administrative healthcare information. 
Join one of our various work groups where Weedy members collect input, exchange ideas, and make recommendations that inspire impactful and far-reaching change in our industry. Learn more about how you can make a difference at Weedy.org. We're back and we're talking with Dr. Donald Rucker, National Coordinator of the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology on another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT. Uh, doctor, uh, another element of our uh, healthcare system, I think, laid bare by this pandemic was uh, substantial racial, ethnic, economic disparities, what we're calling uh, social determinants of health, uh, which we, we, we know that CMS is certainly focusing on and other agencies are focusing on. Uh, do you think that the broad goal of healthcare data interoperability, again, as like an idea, as a, as a, as a goal we're reaching, uh, will have a hand in mitigating those, those disparities? Oh, absolutely. Um, so, you, you know, there are a couple observations here. Um, so first of all, you know, if we um, ponder um, the um, somewhat sporadic nature of interoperability in healthcare, we have almost no interoperability in what I'm broadly going to call uh, the social welfare um, program environment, right? We have many, many beneficiaries, um, and now a lot of these programs are, while they're funded by the federal government, they're paid for by the, they're, they're administered by the states. But we really haven't brought a digital world to, um, to this, um, what's called STOH, social determinants of health. And let me make that real. That's an awfully abstract thing. Let me make it real. So um, as a, as mentioned, I've been ER doc for many years, uh, decades, and, and pretty much mostly worked in sort of urban um, centers and, and the three hospitals I've spent most of my career at each had big mental health um, uh, referral populations, uh, behavioral health. So I would see, I literally seen thousands of these patients and you would know who sent them to the ER, which is obviously not really the ideal place to take care of the folks to begin with. Um, but you would never know their trajectory before, you know, from a day earlier, or a week earlier, or a month earlier, um, unless, you know, let's say somebody happened to know or, it, you know, was also a visit in your ER or your hospital. Um, so I think we just even knowing the trajectories of patients is going to be important to figuring out resources and and tools and options. Um, you know, simple, you know, admit discharge transfer types of maybe not exactly ADT in the classic sense, but very, very similar location messages, I think would be very powerful. Um, we've, if you look at who would be the people to transmit those messages, I think pretty clearly it's going to be the state and local health information exchanges. They're in the geography. They provide the last mile services that get connected. Um, and then you'd need to, you know, use these modern um, APIs, RESTful, JSON, FIRE type of APIs to, um, you know, build flyway apps that, you know, people in a group home or a jail or a shelter could use, right? They're not going to have full bore enterprise um, electronic medical records, right? They're going to need their EMPI 
backbones to really be the, the HIE, which covers all sites of service, not just, again, the big, big hospital delivery networks. Um, so I, I think there's a great opportunity that modern technology and our investments in health information exchange, exchanges have allowed us to harness. We're seeing in, in, in a couple uh, of the HIEs, we're seeing some very interesting work there. San Diego comes to mind. There are a number of others. Very interesting. So, so I think that's a great example that kind of brings it to earth, which is, you know, just knowing where a, a patient was or, or, or when they checked out of one facility or checked into a different facility in, over the past month uh, gives you tremendous uh, information about uh, the patient themselves. Very good. So now um, uh, you mentioned at the beginning of the, of the show uh, that you, one of the reasons why you went back to school and, and took uh, a computer science and, and MBA was you saw the inefficiencies in, in healthcare. Um, how are we doing on these inefficiencies? And, and do you see in the next few years uh, that maybe we'll, we'll have some of those things that you saw initially, we'll have some of those worked out? <coughs> Sorry. Um, wow. Um, you know, if you... So I'm, as you won't be a total surprise, I'm gone to business school, but um, I'm a bit of maybe, I guess, um, you know, an amateur economist. And if you go back to classic economics, microeconomics, not macro, in, you know, the first 50 years of the 1800s, not the 1900s, the 1800s, um, in that point, people really started realizing that having market prices and the allocation of goods and markets where the market clearing price, um, the marginal, you know, the, the marginal utility of the patient or buyer of the healthcare, when that equaled the market clearing price, that was equal to the marginal cost of a producer, right, a doctor or a hospital, if you will, willing to pay that service, that would be the most efficient frontier. The equity things you have to handle sort of separately. Um, the way we, for example, do in food steps, um, where, you know, we don't build vast rules on how to run a grocery store. We provide food stamps. Well, in healthcare, we, um, in 1942, the Stabilization Act went in a very different way, making healthcare pre-tax. And, um, and so what we have is from the root economics, huge, you know, by definition of math, um, inefficiencies and in allocation of every good and service. So how do you address that? Well, um, we don't have market clearing prices other than some things like Botox and LASIK and a couple of sort of oddball things. Everything else is sort of in this complex murk of prices set by Medicare and opaque deals between payers and providers that are not really fully transparent to the public. Um, I, I think the tonic here that will move some of this stuff back and forth, especially combined with increasingly higher deductibles, because the whole mess has gotten too expensive for the country to afford, is transparency. You know, and so as people get transparency on what the care is they've gotten, what is the care that would be available to them, and the cost of that care. Um, and, you know, of course, Weedy has been a very big part of these discussions, integrating clinical administrative data and um, you know, once we, I think, as we move to more transparency, which almost comes with that whole smartphone enablement of your medical records, 
we're going to be in a much better position to be efficient about the care and people's choices. Very good. I, I think what's emerged in in in, uh, in in this program with all the guests we've had is it's two of the, the most significant policy shifts will come from the transparency rules and from the interoperability rules. And the transparency rules start January 1st for the hospitals, and we got two years, three years of those. So uh, we'd love to have you back uh, after the interoperability has been uh, um, sank, sunk in a little bit and transparency sunk in and and uh, give us a report card on, on how we're doing. Um, but for now, uh, our, uh, before we leave, are there any uh, resources or websites that, that you'd like to direct listeners to to find out more information about some of the things you've talked about? Well, um, so ONC has our healthit.gov, you know, just healthit.gov, just as you might expect. And we have lots of resources and all kinds of things there. Um, but um, probably of most immediate interest to folks are we have a number of educational materials and access to um, video presentations on the interoperability rule. Um, so you can learn more about information blocking, um, allowable exceptions to information blocking, um, you know, modern APIs. Um, all of those things are available um, at healthit.gov. Perfect. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Rucker. This has been a pleasure, and uh, I think we've learned quite a bit. And I'm sorry to hear you weren't a mime in Paris, but uh, it's a good uh, story. Yeah, well, well, thank you very much. Uh, uh, best wishes to all. Thanks. Terrific. One of Weedy's primary functions is to keep health plans and hospitals and other providers educated on health IT, and we very much appreciate Dr. Rucker helping Weedy do that today. This has been the collective voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast, where the health and information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. Find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us and be safe.